0: Good morning. If your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Who is Jesus? Jesus' reputation has suffered from people who have professed to agree with him. Like former Texas governor Miriam Ma Ferguson from the early 1900s who opposed a foreign language to be taught in public schools and famously said, if the king's English was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. There have been television shows on the History Channel and CNN that have sought the answer the question of what Jesus even looked like. They've traced the artist's renditions of the appearance of Jesus throughout the centuries. And what it showed, I'm, I'm sure you can understand, shockingly enough, that the artists tended to reproduce pictures of Jesus based upon how they look and how people in their culture look. So in Africa, you had a black Jesus. In Scandinavia, you had a blonde Jesus. In Asia, you had an Asian Jesus. In America, you had a hunky movie star, Fabio Jesus. And the tendency, though, isn't just looks, the tendency is to, to think, to assume that Jesus thinks like I think, that Jesus would do what I think Jesus would do. Josiah Ober, professor of classics and political science at Stanford University, wrote this a number of years ago. What if Cleopatra and Mark Anthony, or not, not Octavian, had won the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C.? Jesus of Nazareth, born just a short generation after the battle, would have come to manhood in a very different society, one administered by highly trained professional Egyptian bureaucrats rather than the nervous Roman amateurs like Pontius Pilate. Those bureaucrats would have had a much closer sense of how Jerusalem politics worked. They they might as well have found some solution to local concerns about this self-proclaimed Messiah that would have not required his crucifixion. They might, for example, have arranged for him to move to Alexandria, where the sophisticated, Hellenized Jewish population would not be scandalized by his audacious ideas. So Jesus might have grown old, gathering to himself a following attracted by the social religious message rather than a dramatic martyrdom. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about his life, about what he taught? It's best not to rely on your own thoughts only, but to read vastly of others, primarily the Bible and those that defend and love the Bible, since its main emphasis is about Jesus. This morning, these two stories in Luke 8, what we're going to look at are causing us to reflect on this question. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And they ask the question, it's really the the, the center point, the main point of the entire chapter in verse 25. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? And we'll be confronted with this power of Jesus about who he is and why he came to earth. And we need this collision with truth this morning. So we'll look at two points here as we make our way through the text. But here's the main idea. Here, here's what I want you to notice and take hold of for our time in the scriptures. This is the main idea. The power of Jesus stretches over waves and winds to the very depths of humanity to save and redeem those that are lost. The power of Jesus stretches over waves and winds to the very depths of humanity to save and redeem those that are lost. And we'll see the power of Jesus over a storm and over demons. That's the two points of the sermon. If it helps you to take notes and pay attention as you go through, it's real simple. Just two points there. Jesus' power over the storm and demons. So, if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 8 and look at verse 22. And I'm going to read 22 through 25 here for the first point Jesus' power over the storm. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? The Sea of Galilee is a body of water, and it's several miles long, a few miles across. It would take some time to cross this body of water. And these are professional fishermen, seasoned veterans who knew every nook and cranny of this body of water, and the sea comes and surrounds them, um, and the, the sea is surrounded, excuse me, by mountains, and, and storms would come in and, and, and cause a disruption, but this storm was like, unlike anything they had seen before. This was a real storm, and these men felt like they were in real danger. This is a real story. Okay? This really happened. Mark's gospel has a, the same details, same story. And in case we're tempted to turn the disciples to massively stupid men compared to our immeasurable wisdom and common sense, we need to realize again that these were experienced fishermen. They knew what they were doing. So if they say we are perishing, it's because they believe they're about to die. They weren't just scaredy cats. They're not overly dramatic. The storm would have rocked all of us. And they awaken Jesus and cry out for help. And Jesus, without any fanfare, without any magical incantation, waving his arms, he just speaks to the storm. He speaks to the storm. Winds and water don't have minds. They, they don't think. They don't have ears to, to comprehend and make decisions. And yet they obey the Lord at his word. Deaf and dumb creation seem to obey better than smart people. And the Lord here is flexing his mighty power. Psalm 135, 5 through 7, says, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And Luke says this about Jesus, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. The Lord does what he pleases. The Bible is not saying here that God's power is greater than nature. No. The Bible is saying that the very power of nature is derivative of God's power. Nature only has power that's on loan from God. All power is from God. So when it thunders and when it rains and when the winds are strong like it was around here on Wednesday, it's God's thunder. God's rain and wind. The power of nature is derivative of God. And Jesus was displaying, I'm not just someone who has a lot of power. I am power itself. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, where is your faith? He's not implying that they don't have any faith at all. Rather, he's asking, where is their faith in this circumstance? Why didn't it show up? He's certainly not saying that if they had faith, the storm wouldn't have come. After all, Jesus was in the boat too. And most likely he isn't saying that with faith, they could have stopped the storm themselves. Jesus seems to be asking more about their faith in relation to their fears during the storm. Fear, not doubt, is the opposite of faith. They had fear. Their logic had taken a back seat and fear was now driving. The disciples had been present when Jesus brought back to life the widow's son in Nain. They were around when Jesus answered the questions from John's disciples and Jesus goes on to display his power over sickness and demons. And some of them were at least around and on the boat with Peter when Jesus brought the incredible amount of fish after a long night of nothing. Spurgeon said, faith is sanctified common sense. Fear is a powerful demolisher of logic. God will often seem like he's asleep because he allows things to come into our lives that upset our comfort. And he will allow storms to come in and rage. He will allow the waters to rise up. And he will let it go longer than we're comfortable. God will not be hurried. Jesus' sleep during the storm isn't the picture we find comforting, but it should be. It should comfort us that he's asleep in the storm with him. Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Take heart? Be of good cheer, is what he's saying. Why take heart? That sounds crazy. Why should we be of good cheer during tribulation? Because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Jesus wins. He conquers death. We all need to be reminded of that today. God wins in the end. And so think now. Take, take all of your pain, all the anxiety that you're feeling, all of the uncomfortable situations, and take them, gather them, and look at them. And to think through that, and Jesus says, I conquered all of those. And you get Peace. A Christian can say the evil and brokenness in this world will not prevail. It will not win. It will all go away one day. But you need to hear this today, friends God will not be hurried. You cannot rush God. And if we're honest, we don't want to hurry God. Do you want to tell the God of the universe that his timing is wrong? Do you want to tell him that he's off on his plans? We need to realize this morning that God will allow the storm to come and he will allow it to ravage us as long as he deems fit. He will not be hurried. We all have dark times when it looks like God, whom we serve, is not cooperating with the script that we've written for our lives. And the storm seems like it's going to win. And it's pushing us farther past our comforts. Some of you are in the midst of that storm. I know I'm, I'm praying for you for strength and for endurance. And still there's others here this morning that you're healthy. You're doing well. Job is going well. family's going well. And praise the Lord. But you need to listen now. You need to listen clearly for that future day when you will have tribulation in this world. You need to log this away and place it in the memory bank and draw from it on that day. God will not be hurried, but he's still there. The late Elizabeth Elliot, one of the godliest women of our generation, told about a time years ago while visiting friends who owned a sheep ranch in northern Wales. She shared about how the sheep were vulnerable to being eaten to death by insects and parasites. And so once every year, the shepherd would take his sheep to a huge vat of uh, antiseptic and completely submerge the sheep. The farmer, in order to save his sheep from death, has to actually hold his sheep underwater in this vat of antiseptic until they have been disinfected. She writes, one by one, their shepherd John seized the animals and they would struggle to climb out the side. And Mac the sheepdog would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp and in a panicky way to the far end, their shepherd John would catch them, spin them around, and force them under again, holding their ears and their eyes and their nose submerged for a few seconds. And as their Lord and Master and Shepherd was pushing their head under, seemingly drowning them at his least as far as they could tell, their panicky eyes would look up over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they're thinking. What what are you doing to me? Why are you doing this to me? And reflecting on that experience, Elliot then said, I've had some experiences in my life which made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out for any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd whom I trusted. And she said, I wondered what it's like to feel like your shepherd is trying to kill you. And then she pauses in this and she remembers the death of her husband at the hands of the very people he strived to share the gospel with. And she said, oh, I remember. That was like drowning. How are sheep to know that what feels like death at the hands of their master is really saving their life? See, the sheep can't understand the ways of the shepherd. Given the choice, they would likely run far away from their master rather than go into the vat. But only the shepherd knows that his harsh treatment is necessary for saving their life. The sheep can't see the bigger picture. Their sheep. But the shepherd sees everything. He knows what he's doing. He knows how long it needs to happen. And he will not be hurried. I believe Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in that boat as they set sail across the lake. He knew he needed to sleep. He needed to teach his men about faith. Jesus takes a nap after a long day of ministry, again, showing his humanity. And the disciples presume that because Jesus is with them in the boat, they're absolutely safe from any sort of harm. Sometimes our Lord sleeps to awaken our faith in him so that we would abandon our trust in ourselves and in this world and run to him to trust in him alone. I assume that for most of you, you would agree that 2020 was quite a storm. Actually, one storm after another, it seems. And it pressed us, and it pushed us farther than we're comfortable. And it might have seemed that Jesus was asleep, that he was with us, but not very concerned. How have you processed this past year? Where was Jesus As you think like the disciples thought here, boy, I wonder if God even cares that I might drown. And Jesus asked us this morning, where is your faith? Faith is not automatic, it's not a feeling, it's not an impulse. Faith is not a mood that we're to have. Faith is an action, a deliberate action. He's saying to them and he's saying to us, get your faith and put it into practice. We can read of Jesus over and over again doing some pretty remarkable things and they saw much of it too. And they need to go back into the recess of their memories and dwell there. And what is real faith? Is it wishing for the best to happen? Is it a a development of an optimistic outlook on life with a little religion added in there? Is that what you think faith is? Spurgeon said, faith is sanctified common sense. Faith is not us believing in things when common sense tells us not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It's not silly. It's not unintelligent. Faith is our reasoned, careful, and intentional thoughts. And what are our thoughts about? God and his promises to us in the Bible. And friend, if you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God through the word, then how you live your life right now will look much different than if you didn't believe it at all. That's faith. A positive certainty expressed in action. Our faith is not just Believing in God, our faith is believing God. Believing his word, believing his promises, believing that he's coming back, believing that he died to save us from our sins and that you are now his, not because of anything you did, but only because of what Jesus Christ did. That's faith. And be sure, friends, you cannot create faith out of nothing. The scriptures teach us that it's a gift from God. Faith comes from God. So if you cannot believe on your own and we are guilty for not believing, then what should you do? That's a fantastic question. You call upon God to give you the gift of faith. Lord, help my unbelief. Ask God to give you eyes and ears to see and hear and understand his word. And we call upon the name of the Lord with the promise of Romans ten thirteen. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we go to God for mercy. That's the message of the gospel, friends. Through Jesus Christ, God does everything we cannot do for ourselves. God provides righteousness for us through Jesus' perfect obedience. God provides payment for our sin through Jesus' death on the cross. God provides for us eternal life through raising Jesus from the grave three days later. Everything we need from righteousness to atonement to new life, God provides that to us through his son. And faith is no exception. And by God's grace, we come to believe. And so, friend, ask God, go to him and ask for faith to believe in him. To believe in His son Jesus for salvation. And friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you are perishing. You're dying right now. These men here share an infinitely important doctrinal truth in their response to Jesus. They say to him, We are perishing. And how much truth in those three words? Jesus is the only one who can save the perishing. So turn to him in faith today. If you come utterly defeated in your life, it's because you are. You're outside of Christ. Turn and trust Christ for life. And he promises to save you. Well, in verse 25, the storm is over. It's gone. And Jesus calmed things and and what's the response? They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? And he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. They're not shaking because of the storm, but because of Jesus. And Jesus is a human in the story, but he's also divine. He's tired and so what does he do? He takes a nap. Again, the, the normal needs of humanity and yet then he speaks with the voice of deity. And that's enough to send his disciples over the edge and ask, who is this man? Surely this question had been uh, forming in their mind during their time with him, but now the question just comes blurting out of their mouths, who is Jesus? Who is this man? How would you answer that question? To think about it yourself, who is Jesus? It's the greatest question you could ever ask yourself. Where do you place Jesus in in life, in history, in your future? Do you believe him when he speaks? Do you trust him with your life? Are you able to trust him in the storms of your life? Is Jesus powerful enough to save you, to to keep you? Who's Jesus? You know, the elders, we gave you a book uh, a few months ago with the same title. Have you read it? It's a good book can Help you answer this question. It's really the most important question you will ever answer in your life. Who is Jesus? Someone knows. Praise the Lord. Well, that's the first. We've seen Jesus' power over the storm. Second, Jesus' power over the demons. Look at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got on the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The man's condition is by far the most vivid and pathetic picture we have recorded anywhere of Scripture of what it looks like to be affected and controlled by demons. Luke takes some time to describe the man's humiliation. For for a long time, he, he wore no clothes. His isolation. He he was not staying in a house, but among the tombs. He was being dr- driven by demons to desert places. In his subjection, for many times the unclean spirit dragged him away. In his fragmentation, because he was full of many demons. This man was mangled humanity right before Jesus's eyes. Unlike the Holy Spirit, who always sets a man free, develops his personality, and increases his self-control and dignity. Satanic forces seem to strive to overpower a man's personality and ultimately to break his self-control, to rob him as they did the demonic of self-respect. It's fascinating to know that the demons had no difficulty in recognizing the identity of Jesus here. The people surrounding Jesus, chapter after chapter, had a, a veiled understanding. But the de- demonic world, they recognized Jesus immediately. They know who he is and what he can do. But they're stupid. The stupidity of these demons, they're more stupid than than you and I can imagine. For denying God and His rule over them is the dumbest thing you can possibly do. But even in their stupidity, they plead for mercy. The demons continue to implore Jesus, trying to bargain with Him. They don't want to go into the abyss. The abyss is the netherworld, the abode of spirit powers, the dead imprisoned spirits, the place of Satan's prison. And they beg Jesus, they beg him, not to send them to the abyss. They know something of this place, this this hell, so much so they, they want nothing to do with it. And that is so different than the haphazard talk that we hear from humans. When I die, I want to go to hell. All my friends are going to be in hell. We're just going to party. We're going to have a great old time. And that's said by someone who has only seen or heard heard veiled statements of hell. But here, friends, is the testimony of demons. Pleading with Jesus not to send them there. They fear the abyss. They don't want to go. And the terror of the demons is the hope of the church. Jesus agrees and sends them into the herd of pigs and they head over the bank into the water and they drowned and then we see the the response from this event first we see the man once possessed and controlled by demons now sits clothed and in his right mind with Jesus he is made new and it's astounding second though we see the townspeople and the, the result of all this drama and what's their response they're afraid they look at the wholeness, the quietness, the submission, the sanity of this man, and they're fearful. Friends, there is fear that will draw you to Jesus, and there is fear that you will drive you from Jesus. They ask Jesus to leave. They see the man, they see what happened, and they say, Jesus, you have to go. Sometimes Jesus granting a request is part of his judgment towards people. They don't care about this man's healing. They're shocked and fearful and they beg Jesus to leave. Why? Why did they ask him to leave? My guess, they weren't too concerned over the man being possessed by demons. That didn't cause them to have fear anymore. But they feared that Jesus would turn their lives upside down. Were they too concerned over lost wages and lost income to give God glory for this healing? It seems so. They could control this man. They would bind him and stick him in a corner. They would keep living how they wanted to live. But Jesus comes and he upsets their life. He turns everything upside down and they respond in fear. If you're reading the Bible plan with us, we read yesterday in Acts 16, right? I just love how God's word speaks in different situations. You remember in Acts 16? Uh, Paul's experience in Philippi. He walks in and he's annoyed by this girl. Me and Paul would get along, I think. And, and casts out a demon from her, the slave girl. And afterwards, what do the people do? Paul, you gotta leave. In that situation, along with this one, The reason for the expulsion is because of fear and financial loss. Control in money. That's what it comes down to in these situations. They have lost control over the situation and they fear that they're going to lose more wealth. They had been willing to help the man just enough when it was a matter of chaining him up to the tombs. to, To manage him. But if the man's deliverance from demons was going to cost them something, and it cost them something, a whole herd of pigs. Well, that's a different matter altogether. The herd of pigs represented an enormous amount of food and money. And they needed Jesus gone before he ruined their economy. See, their 401k was more important than this man. These people had navigated a successful balance of tolerance and management of this demonic man that allowed them to keep the attention off their lives. They would tolerate this crazy man as long as they could keep their fortune. As long as they could have the money, the stability, the control. But now the power of God comes for good to their community, and it disturbs the way of life of what they've expected. E- even when it's for good, power that can neither be calculated or managed is plain frightening. And for them, Jesus has to go. They were not afraid of this man now in his right mind, no, they're afraid of the effects of Jesus Christ. They couldn't handle the upheaval that Jesus brought. And what a sad comment on this man's fallen and unregenerate state that they should feel more at home, more at peace with demons ruling a man than with Christ who has power to cast out demons. They reject God's word. Whatever you do, friends, don't reject God's word. That's what they do here. After Jesus heals the man who is possessed by demons, they see the miracle, they see the man clothed in his right mind after he had been running around naked and crazed for years. They hear how it's done, and they reject Christ and they want him to leave. Do you think about God the same way in your life? Do you think if I can manage him, if I can control what he does in my life, then he can stay? But as soon as he comes in and starts messing things up, well, Jesus has to go. Friends, Jesus has come to mess up your comfortable earthly life to give you a better everlasting life. The townspeople of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart. But the man who was healed, he asked Jesus that he can go with him. The demons begged to depart from Jesus. The town begs Jesus to leave. The man who, who, free of demons, begs now to go with Jesus. This is new life. And sometimes Jesus answers with a yes, and sometimes he answers no. And he tells this man, no. No, you need to stay, and you need to preach. Friends, you need to respond like this man. You need to confess your sins. You need to beg to go with Christ no matter where he goes. Beg that Christ would be your Savior and Lord. Beg that all Christ, all that he's done to turn away God's wrath against your sin and to reconcile you to God, that it would be yours through faith. And Jesus tells this man to stay and declare all that God had done And the former lunatic is now a trophy of power and grace of the Son of the Most High. You notice Jesus says to declare how much God had done for him. And he went on to proclaim what? What Jesus had done for him. He understood who Jesus was. And he becomes a faithful witness for him. And so you may ask Jesus to go. You may ask for it to leave. But the gospel always stays. And praise God for that. Well, there's one last thing here. There's one aspect of the story that I found fascinating as I was studying and reading Tim Keller and the similarities with Jesus calming the storm and what happened in the Old Testament with in the book of Jonah. Both Jesus and Jonah were on a boat, and both have a description of a storm that was almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah, what were they doing? Sleeping. You remember? And both stories have experienced sailors freaking out because of the seriousness of the storm. Two incredible stories that seem almost identical, but the, there's one big difference. And see, in Jonah, he, he awakens, he, he's questioned by them and, and says, the only way I'm going to survive, the only way you're going to survive is if I die. He says, toss me overboard and the storms will stop. If I perish, you will survive. If I die, you will live, is what Jonah is saying. And they listen and they throw him into the sea, and Jonah swallowed up by a large fish for three days. But that doesn't happen here in Luke's account, at least not yet. You know, in a couple of chapters, chapters eleven, Jesus is preaching. The people continue, they want a sign. And Jesus says, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah? What does he have to do with Jesus? Jesus is saying to them, I'm, I'm going to calm all the storms of your life, all the waves, all the raging, and it will stop. And I'm going to stop death and destruction and pain, and I will do this for you. And how will Jesus do this for you? He'll be thrown into the sea. He'll be placed in that cross. He would be put through the only storm that we could never survive. And he did it willingly, like Jonah. And Jesus would come out on the other side three days later. If you believe what Christ did for you in that storm, dying on the cross for you, you won't ever doubt his love for you. You won't ever say, God, do you still care for me? Because you know that he does. He went through that storm for you and for me. And he wouldn't abandon us in that much greater storm, and he won't abandon you in this smaller storm now. Jesus is with us. And friends, he's coming back for us to rescue us from these smaller storms so that we would live eternally with him. He promises us that in his word. And God always fulfills his promises. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are absolutely blown away by what you teach us. We thank you for your word as faithful men who were guided by the Holy Spirit recorded it for us and what Jesus did and we're astounded by how your word instructs us in living the Christian life. In this passage it says when Jesus spoke to the winds and waves that after he spoke there was calm. And for all of us who hear God's word we experience this calm. And I pray that we would listen to your word. Help us to not reject your word like the people in this town do, but help us to accept Christ, especially when he's messing up our comfort. Help us to trust Christ in faith, to believe his word. Help us to live for him. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.